Payments is an industry that has an incredibly wide moat. Throughout my career, I've, I've evolved with payments technology. The world of financial services are you know, changing quite quickly. I always knew I was going to start my own company. Welcome to InCheck with FinTech. Welcome everyone to another episode of InCheck with FinTech organized by PCN. My name is Andre van der Westeisen, and on the show, we introduce CEOs, founders, and executives from the fintech space, exploring their companies, market trends, and developments. In this episode, we have the pleasure of having Ted Harrington join us, the author of Hackable, How to Do Application Security Rights. Ted's also the executive partner at Independent Security Evaluators, or IEC for short, a company of ethical hackers famous for hacking cars, medical devices, web applications, and password managers. Welcome to the show, Ted. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to have you on. So Ted, you've helped hundreds of companies fix tens of thousands of security vulnerabilities. This includes Google, Amazon, Netflix, and a bunch of other huge names. And your team founded and organized IoT or Internet of Things Village, which spreads awareness about security, how to improve it, teaching the newest methods, sharing research, and live bug hunts. Can you tell us more about the inception and current challenges IoT Village is addressing and researching? Yeah, what we wanted to do with IoT Village was to try to make the process of security research and really the process of breaking things to be more experiential mm. so that people who, whether they are new to security or they're already in security, but maybe they're not in the ethical hacking side, or maybe they already are in the ethical hacking side and they want to level up their skills. We wanted to create an environment where people could participate in labs, uh, compete against themselves and against others, where we could have some of the most foremost researchers in the world come and present research that they've been doing. Uh, we wanted to engage the manufacturers community and have literally companies who make things come bring those things that people could break. And, mm. and that's, what, that's what we set out to do. And uh, it, it's funny, the story arc, because when we started this thing about maybe about six years ago, <laughs> you know, when you go to a conference and there's like the main area where the conference is, and then you go it down a, a side hallway and that's where like the secondary, like lesser important stuff is. Mm. Mm. Well, go down a third or fourth or fifth hallway. We were like down a corner, down a corner, down a hallway, around another corner. And we were in this room. It wasn't even our room. It was someone else's room. It was like some other program. <laughs> and we were this one little table in the back corner, literally behind a trash can. I mean, at one point, someone threw their trash, trying to get in the trash can, missed, and it landed. Wow. <laughs> that's a great Inception story, that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it started, like, because we, we did that at DEF CON, which is the largest mm -hmm. uh, research-focused conference in the world. And it was new at the time. No one necessarily knew if it was going to, like, what it was going to become mm. and then you know fast forward to today many years later and i obviously am biased in this but uh, i think it's probably the best uh not to say that other villages aren't good they're all amazing but in terms of production quality you know we wanted to mm. create something that was defined by excellence and so just the way that it looks the feel that it is in the room the scope of it and then ultimately being able to create a contest that as you alluded to um has helped our participants win this very elusive, very elite designation, which is the DEF CON black badge. You know, that's pretty mm. far away from uh, someone's trash. Yeah, that, that's, our, our yeah that's, a, that's a long way away, I have to say. Um, I had quite a great time looking at, uh, you know, researching the DEF CON and, and all of the black badge, uh, what you guys won, all that. Um, 
And for those who don't know, the, the black badge is, and, and I absolutely love this description, is a powerful talisman awarded only to those who have emerged unbeaten from the crucible of elite competition. And to add, the competition changes each year, as is the nature of the talisman. Absolutely love that. In, in a tech world where everything's changing all the time, the competition needs to change. And, and that's hugely impressive, I think. And, and what were some of the startling examples of vulnerabilities you've discovered across these past six years that you've hosted this event? Yeah, there have been some really cool ones. Uh, and, and what's really cool about organizing uh, an event like this is that by organizing it, we get to bring together all these, all these great minds and all this great research that makes an impact that's exponentially uh, more powerful than we could do alone, even though we do uh, a tremendous amount of our own research. I mean, we're still one organization in the larger ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And there have been some really cool things we've seen, like uh, we've seen people, there was one guy who was able to shoot a drone out of the sky just by issuing a command to it. That was a really dramatic demo. You know, he's like, yeah, his keyboard. This <laughs> um the press really like that one we've looked at things like uh one of the researchers focused on um connected smart thermostats and how someone could essentially take over a smart home by attacking the thermostat and oh, wow. uh that same researcher looked at there's this toy it's called kayla it's a it's a doll that talks to your kid which I mean, that's creepy enough as it is but now you yeah. have a doll that you could take over and make it swear <laughs> Jeez, that's, that is pretty nuts. Um, I saw this one of one of your videos where um, your guys hacked a medical device. So the, at the nurse's station, it still shows a heartbeat for the patient. Meanwhile, in the patient room, they could be flatlining. And that is, you know, a startling discovery that it could, I don't know how easy it is, but these things are vulnerable and it could have massive real world impacts. Yeah, that one, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because of course the examples that I originally mentioned were the kind of things that are I think interesting but mm. don't necessarily change the world right if someone's like okay well that person who owns a drone their drone falls down like okay whatever this yeah this doll that you probably sh shouldn't yeah. be a doll <laughs> but medical devices yeah I mean you're talking about literally patient safety and and all of us every single human on this planet is a patient at some point yeah. And, you know, that, I mean, talk about a societal problem and those, those issues that we were able to find in medical devices, that was research that our organization published. Mm. Um, we were able, to, you could intentionally hurt somebody if you wanted to, and the ease at which someone could actually execute that type of attack, it was, it, it wasn't something that the least skilled person could do but it okay. didn't require a nation state level of skill and resources. They just needed to know how to connect the dots of a few different types of mm. uh, exploits. Mm. And it's a technique called chaining them together. So if you chain your exploits together, you can uh, create this outcome. And the outcome was you could hurt somebody. Jeez, absolutely terrifying. And yeah. so you guys are white hats, of course. So you then take this research and you go back to the company and say, listen, these are your vulnerabilities, fix them. So can you take... Take us through that sort of process and how, I guess, to be blunt, how a manufacturer would respond to you. Uh, do you approach them and say, listen, we want to look at your device or do you look at the device then approach them? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So first we have to put this in the right frame. And the frame mm -hmm. is that 
the whole point of security, the entire point of security overall as a field, but especially the corner of it that we come from with, with ethical hacking, the whole point is to make things better. And that's really, really important to note because there, there is sometimes a misconception that, um, that security researchers are maybe just doing this to be jerks. <laughs> and that's actually not the case. Really what we're trying to do is we're trying to help organizations be better, improve their solutions. And so because that's the motivation, mm. now when we research something and we submit it to the afflicted company, they, well, hopefully they know, but <laughs> they, mm. they should recognize that the purpose is that, is to say, uh, we found a problem, we want you to help, uh, we want you to be able to fix it. But we also mm. then want to be able to take that and, and share the issue with the broader world so that everyone else can learn from it too. And yep. that's where there's this really important distinction between research and consulting, because mm -hmm. in research, and this goes to your question of like, do you approach the company first or do you do the research first? In research, the, the company doesn't usually know that it's happening, or even if they know that it's happening, they don't really want to participate in it. And so the compensation for that effort is essentially the ability to educate the broader community. Mm -hmm. um, in consulting, of course, the compensation is you get paid. A company hires you and yep. says, here's what we're trying to look at. And then the results stay strictly confidential. Mm. So that's mm. really kind of the difference. But the, the outcome is essentially the same, which is how do we ultimately make things better? But in research, yep. yeah, I wouldn't say that, <laughs> I wouldn't say that all companies are super excited when they receive <laughs> their vulnerabilities. And I think there's a lot of sort of elements of human psychology that go into why that's the case. Um, mm. But for the most part, they're not, Maybe they're medium. <laughs> Some are hostile. <laughs> uh, in the rare cases, they're very excited about it. And so that's one of the things that we have to do, which is really interesting in, a, in such a scientific and technical uh, mm. field that we're in. A big part of our success has to do with the ability to communicate interpersonally. Like, how can we make this organization feel not threatened? Because that's not the point. The point isn't the mm. we, we want them to feel like, hey, we all have flaws. Like mm. if you want to get stronger and someone says, here's, oh, help, yeah. Well, here's, yeah, here's how you're going to do it. You, you want to, mm. you want to get, you want to get stronger. So yeah. anyway, so that's what it's, that's what it's like as a researcher working with companies. We started PCN 12 years ago with a view to serving the FinTech community from a growth perspective. Since 2008, PCN has helped household names in fintech as well as the largest global merchants grow with the best talent who have specific financial technology experience. If you are a VC with a portfolio of fintech businesses, a scale-up looking to hire the best talent, or a merchant looking to hire a head of payments or an entire payments team, get in touch today for a no-obligation consultation on how PCN can help you accomplish your hiring goals. Incredible. So then off that, diving further into your book, there's, I mean, tell yourself, we haven't been hacked yet, so we must be okay. And in your book, you mentioned five things leaders must stop doing to better secure their tech. So could you please dive into that? What do they need to stop doing? Yeah, well, there's, there's at least <laughs> five. I did say there's five, but there's probably more. Um, yeah, so the whole thrust of this book, so the book's called Hackable and uh, the reason it's called Hackable actually is because I was I was kind of getting fed up of people. Fed up sounds too strong. It sounds like I'm a jerk. No, I was I was getting. <laughs> <laughs> what 
we'll just go with fed up. I was getting fed up with you know, people, people thinking that their systems are unhackable, right? And people still think mm. that like, oh no, we're doing all the right stuff. We can't be defeated. I'm like, what's the opposite of unhackable? And mm. so that, you know, that's where the title came yeah. from. Mm. And the whole thrust of the book is to identify the misconceptions that hold organizations back and replace them with what they should do instead. And so there's tons and tons of examples. I mean, the whole, like every chapter addresses one area of a common misconception. So, I mean, we could spend the whole podcast answering this one question, mm -hmm. but one that really, um, that jumps out, you know, right off the bat is that uh, many companies don't actually know what it is that they're doing when they're getting security testing done. And I don't, and that's actually not necessarily an indictment on the company who buys that type of service, mm -hmm. but it's an indictment of the provider of the service. Because one of the, one of the challenges in security today is there's this term, this prevailing term that probably most of your listeners are familiar with if they're at all involved with the security side of their solutions, that's called penetration testing. And penetration mm. testing is essentially a model that helps an organization find their security vulnerabilities so they can fix them. But the problem is that that term, it has a very specific meaning and it means a very specific approach, uh, uh, a level of investment of time, effort, and money, and a certain type of outcome. But what penetration testing has really come to mean today, like if you were to go Google that term right now, it actually is being used to mean something completely different. And so now where does that leave the company who buys that service, mm. right? They say, well, I know I need penetration testing. So I go and buy penetration testing, but they're being sold something else. And that's a really significant mm. problem. Wait, so, so what are they, are they being sold? Sorry, sorry if you were building to that, but what, what are they being sold instead of the actual penetration testing? Yeah, so let me explain this with a metaphor because the terms are confusing even to security professionals. So let's use cars as a metaphor. So penetration testing is kind of like when a car maker wants to understand how does the vehicle perform in a specific crash scenario, right? They want to know in a head-on collision, what's going to happen mm. to the passenger. And so what do they do? They literally crash the car into the wall. And then they, they measure what happened. Now it's, it's very narrowly defined scope. It says, Hey, given these are the conditions, these are parameters of the test. And we're going to evaluate this sort of binary outcome. Does the passenger survive or not survive this specific scenario? And that's a lot what penetration testing is like. It's, it's, it's designed for a system that's built. Like the car is actually built. This isn't a, mm. a design concept of a car. The car is built and they actually run a simulation but it's narrowly defined to a specific scope and the purpose is to determine a, a single outcome. It's not to say, okay, based on the outcome of this, how do, do we evaluate like every possible aspect of the car? We're evaluating a scenario. So that's hmm. what penetration testing is like. But really what they're commonly sold is more like when the check engine light comes on in your car, that little scary orange light with the, the engine and you're like, oh, oh yes. that's probably not good. And hmm. so you go to the mechanic and what the mechanic does is the mechanic takes this little tool, they stick it into the dash, and it essentially interrogates the onboard computer to say, hey, what's causing this? And it spits back a code. And the code says, okay, here's the problem. Here's how you turn it off. Hmm. That's really, really different from crashing the car into the wall, right? And yeah. that's really what um, vulnerability scanning is like. But the problem with vulnerability scanning, which to define what it is, is very, uh, very quick, very easy, very inexpensive, and it looks for known issues. 
So mm. that's what vulnerability scanning is like. But today, penetration testing is really being presented. Vulnerability scanning is being presented as penetration testing. So right. Okay. Someone's saying, crash the car into the wall. And someone else yeah. is like, sure, here's the diagnostic scan to turn off the check engine light. And the person <laughs> who asked for those by the same term doesn't necessarily know the difference because that's why they're hiring mm. an expert. But what confuses it even further is there's a third element, which is what people typically need is actually neither of those things. Usually what people need is what's called vulnerability assessments. And vulnerability assessments are like the entire department that is automotive safety engineering, right? So what that department does for a car is they look at how all the different components work together. How does the uh, airbag system work with the seatbelts, work with the uh, side impact beams, work with the lane departure technology? And mm. what they're trying to do is think about the car holistically in order to really yeah. answer this question. Not so much will the passenger survive in this specific scenario like you'd get with penetration testing or what is uh, impacting the performance of the vehicle right now, what you would get with the scan, but rather mm. how do we think about this car as a complete system. And that's mm. really what vulnerability assessments are like. It helps you identify the problems, assign severity, and ultimately know what to do about it. And yeah. so this is a great example of where organizations, they, they need to be able to better align what their approaches are to the outcome they're seeking. Mm. And, and that's one of the key, I mean, I'll write a whole chapter about this particular problem. It's obviously mm. uh, has some nuance to it, but that's, that's one of the first ones that I would focus on. Yeah. And you also mentioned that there's a uniqueness to the approach of the hacker compared to the defender. So is complacency a huge benefiting factor for the attacker? So someone, you know, they do the assessment, they, they get all of their ducks in a row, right? And then they become complacent. How big of a threat is that, you know, look, looking forward for them? Yeah, I like the way you're, you're asking the question. Because yes, I, the complacency is definitely an advantage. Uh, let me rephrase that. The complacency of the defender is an advantage for the attacker, for sure. Um, but complacency, that word might not necessarily resonate with the people listening to this. Because I do believe mm. that even though the heart of what you're saying is, is correct, the complacency is the problem. I don't think that companies experience it as complacency. I don't mm. necessarily... There are companies definitely who are complacent about their security program all day long. But the real problem I think is where, where companies think that they're not being complacent. They think that they're approaching their security mission in an effective way, but it's actually manifesting uh, as complacency. Hmm. And think about it this way. It's like this, um, the, if we put ourselves in the shoes of the defender, there is no, or sorry, if we put, our shoes, put ourselves in the shoes of the attacker, there is no boardroom somewhere where a bunch of attackers are sitting around debating or questioning whether or not the reality exists of that they're attacking companies. They're just doing it. They're, in, they're already mm. in the game. Mm. But if you think about the defenders, think about what your typical chief information security officer, chief technology officer, chief information officer, VP of engineering, like what do these people have to do all day? They have to constantly be defending uh, to the upper management, why they should get people, why they should get budget, how to quantify whether this is working or not, how to mm. do more with fewer people. And think about that. If like 90% of their time is going to justify that they're trying to play a game, 
How are they mm. ever going to win the game when the opponent is spending 100% of their time playing the game? It's like, mm. if you think of a, a soccer match, right? It would be like, on one hand, you've got the, the professional team who practices seven days a week together. And on the other hand, you've got the team deciding whether or not they should get a goalkeeper. <laughs> You're just never going to win that game. Yeah, yeah, for sure. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing in order to receive every episode as it's published. The fintech space is ever-changing, and we care about keeping you up to date with the latest happenings in this exciting space. If you wish to appear on the next episode of In Check with Fintech, please email podcast at teampcn.com. That's podcast at teampcn.com. So is the pace of digital innovation, especially in the financial space, outpacing adoption or reform of you know, industry-wide security standards? Yes, I would say that is probably true in any industry, uh, not just financial services. Mm. Now, financial services has an advantage that unlike other industries, in financial services, on the, on the spectrum of industries that are really focusing on security financial services is probably on like the highest Mm. end as compared to some other ones so that's great so they kind of within this industry there's already that sort of pre-wiring but the the concept that you mentioned is very very true which is that innovation happens faster than the ability to integrate security effectively into it Mm. and they sort of fall in cycles there's always sort of the innovation happens and then there's this adoption of that innovation. And then there's people like me and, and my peers in the community kind of chasing after that. Like, okay, here's how mm-hmm. we have to, you know, make sure this all works, works together. Yeah. And yeah. So the more progressive organizations, the way they're thinking about it is they're thinking about how do I uh, consider security during the development process? Like literally when the idea is still drawn on a whiteboard. Hmm. that's when I start thinking about security and that's the most effective way to deal with the rapid pace of innovation. Yeah. And you dropped this interesting term, grasp, grasp, break, adapt. I'd love for you to go into that a little bit more. Yeah. I sort of, I sort of think about security in these three modes and even my thinking about these modes has evolved over time, but the idea of grasp is we have to, it's about how we think, right? We have to understand Hmm who we're up against, who the attackers are, what it is we're trying to defend, um, mm. what we're trying to protect. We have to understand how attackers think and how they operate. We have to understand the constraints of our own businesses and how we're going to operate within those constraints. So the first is really grasp is all about thinking. Mm. And that I think surprises people because they're like, aren't you talking about this really technical complex thing? Why are you talking about how I think? And, but the reality is think about anything in the human condition anything and we're not even talking about technology anymore just human beings mm. how we think determines what we achieve and yeah, subjective beings right <laughs> exactly so that's what grasp is about we can't succeed until we kind of know what it is we're trying to do break mm. is about how do we actually attack the system the way that an attacker would how do we find mm. those fundamental flaws how do we identify the the assumptions that are baked into how this works that are wrong so that's what break is all about. We actually have to break it. We don't, we can't just suffice to say, oh, we met, you know, this checklist of best practices. No, we actually have to get in there the way an attacker would and try to deconstruct it. Mm. And then adapt is about what we were actually just talking about a moment ago is mm. that 
things are going to evolve. The attacker changes, the marketplace changes, the threat landscape changes, uh, just tech itself changes. And this mm. change is relentless. And so we also have to be relentless in how we adapt in order to uh, defend against it. So those are essentially the three things. They cycle on, on each other, but understand how we think we have to break the system and then we have to evolve. Yeah, and, and, and that's where the immense value of having an external team assessing your system comes in, right? Because internally you're having this subjective experience of, of you know, trying to you know, improve your security, but you know, maybe knocking your head against the wall. Another team comes in and they discover a plethora of things you never even thought to begin to look. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I have a, a bit of a point of view on this because I, <laughs> I am one of those external people. Uh, yes. but I actually argue <laughs> in the book that you need both internal teams and external teams, which kind of surprises people. They're like, wait, wouldn't you just only argue for external teams because it's to your benefit? I'm like, well, that would be to my benefit, but that doesn't actually help solve the problem. We, we need both. Mm. But mm. some of the advantages, yeah, you, you hit on why you might want an external, not just an external team, but really a partner because they bring the, the viewpoint that um, internally might not have, they're independent of any bias that exists within the company. They're able to bring subject matter expertise that most companies don't have in-house nor even should have in-house because you'd be paying mm -hmm. for a, something you only need some of the time, not all the time. And of course, the ability to deploy those resources right away. So what an external team ultimately does is it helps magnify and amplify the ability for the internal team to succeed so that overall the company can achieve its mission. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So now sort of moving towards the end of the podcast and closing remarks, you also host a podcast, the Tech Done Different podcast, um, exploring how people do, are doing things differently and succeeding. So tell us, have you stumbled across any interesting insights recently? Oh man, I'm so like... <laughs> As you know, you hosting a podcast is just an excuse to talk to people that you respect and like want to have interesting conversations with. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I've had some some pretty cool ones. I, I kind of have two different types of guests on the show. I have either guests who come from tech or from security to say, look, here's what I did right or wrong. And here's, here's mm. how I might apply that. Uh, and then, but the other is people from outside of tech. So it's really cool. So I've had like Las Vegas headliners, FBI profilers. I had one of the most oh, wow. successful- uh, consumer product people ever on um, home, home shopping network. And these people come in and it, it's crazy where they can come in and they can start talking about these ideas that have absolutely nothing to do with technology. And what I'm able to do is say what I, you know, extract from what they just said, Hey, I'm going to apply that to this problem we have in tech. So does this yeah. sound like what you're saying? And they're like, yeah, that's exactly it. And it's amazing to be able to get these sort of different viewpoints. And that to me, that's the whole point of security period is mm, mm. Uh, or ethical hacking is we have to look at things differently and that's why i wanted to create a podcast that was all about how do we get these super successful people extract their mindset and then help everyone in tech think differently yes that sounds absolutely incredible um don't forget to check out ted's book hackable on how to do application security rights available on amazon and as of yesterday on audible thanks for being on the show ted what a pleasure yeah, thanks for having me. And, you know, if this triggered any questions for anybody, you wanted to uh, know where to so follow me on social media, know more about the book, you want to ask about security testing, you know, however I can be a resource, just go to tedharrington.com and all my information is there. I'm, I'm pretty responsive. So, yeah, happy to keep the conversation going. Wonderful. Thank you to our audience for tuning into this week's episode of InCheck with Fintech. 
If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe through your favorite podcasting platform, and we'll see you next week with a fresh installment. Thanks for listening, and we'd like to leave you with a more serious message from a partner, Free Your Girl, who are dedicated to fighting child prostitution and impunity all over the world. Hi, I'm Eveline, CEO and founder of Free Your Girl. Every day, two million children, especially girls, are being held captive worldwide. They are locked up and exploited in brothels, dance bars, or online, forced into sexual exploitation. Their freedom is taken away together with their youth, family, and future. We are dedicated to fight sexual exploitation of children by rescuing these girls. Please join us, unlock their freedom, and unlock your potential by becoming a business partner. Please visit freeagirl.com for more information. Thank you.